This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Bronwyn Milkins. Hello, mental workers, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, we've got a very interesting episode for you. I'm also excited, like I am every episode, but this one is a bit more interesting. I've got Amanda with me and we're going to unpack a vignette, so a a fictional case study, and we're going to see how we might approach it from a cognitive behavioral perspective and from a schema therapy perspective. This is going to be really cool. Thanks, Amanda, for joining us. No problems. I'm so excited for this. And Amanda, just remind the listeners who you are. So I'm Amanda. I'm the director of Amanda Moses Psychology. Um, My business is focused solely on supporting early career psychologists. Brilliant. Yeah. And Amanda does lots of things for early career psychs. She has a great Facebook group. I'll link that in the show notes as well. It's really good. Yeah. Thank you. It's a nice little community. It is a really nice supportive space. I really enjoy it. And She does a lot of things where she releases treatment manuals as well. So we're going to reference Amanda's treatment manual as we go through. You'll see how it comes in handy with this case. Are you ready to get going, Amanda? I'm ready. Okay. So when I am formulating clients who come to me, I do think of which therapy would be best for them. So as a psychologist, I know a few different therapies now. I'm pretty good with CBT, DBT, ACT, schema, and I guess some variations, like I can do mindfulness-based cognitive therapy as well. I guess I do use a bit of an integrative approach. So that means that I might borrow techniques from different therapies, but the formulation comes from a model that I select from a particular therapy. It's interesting because I, I do the same. So even though I really like CBT and I use it in a wide variety of like contexts and presentations, I find that I also integrate. So I, for example, would integrate schema uh, therapy into my CBT work or maybe some act-based elements or other types of therapies. I think it's so nice to have like a variety in your toolkit. Um, and so even with in that context of like one therapy modality, I can still draw from other therapeutic, I suppose, interventions and bring them in where they're kind of workable. So one of the things I think about with clients and their formulations is I think about which story would they like to hold in their mind about what they're going through. And so with cognitive behavioral therapy, I feel like the story there is that like, look, things have gotten bad, you've gotten stressed out. And it's interesting to see that your thinking has changed in response to that. And sometimes when you think it's maybe not reflecting what's happening there, but you're thinking, okay, that person is there to screw me over when that person might be having a genuine interest interaction with you and trying to be caring. Um, But from a schema perspective, I might say that that's a mistrust schema and that might be a more acceptable story because the person might be like, well, yeah, I had to be really skeptical of people growing up. And so that led to me not really trusting people. Yeah. So that's how I kind of think about which, which model would be best for my clients as well. I think about which story they would like as an explanation of their difficulties. That's such a nice way of looking at it. I hadn't really thought of it in that way. It was interesting. I read something just recently because I'm developing the training at the moment, um, like how to integrate schemas into CBT. And so as I've been kind of digging into the research and the textbooks, like 
schema therapy was originally designed to kind of extend beyond CBT really and for more complex more challenging problems but I read a really nice line that for me kind of resonated with how I look at the difference between the two so like CBT we're thinking of it being more of a top-down approach and schema therapy is more of a bottom-up approach and so as I was kind of like looking through and doing my trainings on this and developing the content. It's like, okay, so if you think about it, you're almost starting like for CBT, for example, you're starting on that surface level, then you work your way down and you get down to the kind of nitty gritty core beliefs, what's sitting under the surface. Whereas with schema, you're doing the opposite. So you start like kind of really at the core, at that kind of meet where those core beliefs are, say, and then you work your way back up to the top and to the surface. And so it's just taking a different approach. Like you're starting at the opposite end, really, which I think was like, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Wow. That's such a brilliant distinction. I really like that. It really just makes it so clear for me, actually. Me too. I I was like, yes, okay, I get it now. And like, and you can see where they obviously cross over and like, it's so like, I suppose as therapies, they're really nicely, I feel like they align well and you can really integrate them nicely. Um, But it's just like, where do I begin? You know, and if I'm beginning with CBT, it's here. And if I'm beginning with schema, it's, you know, the opposite end really. Yeah. And it's also thinking about, like you say, the purpose of the therapy. And I think what does the client need relief from as well? If they need immediate symptom relief, I usually go straight to CBT because that has excellent strategies that will help them feel better or wherever they want to go, like in a few weeks, if we help them get the skills and strategies in place. Whereas with schema therapy, technically you can go into a mode approach and then you could get them to identify their modes. So their ways of being every day and, and work out how they're meeting their needs but I think that requires more psychoeducation like these words are a little bit difficult to understand sometimes and you really need the whole package for them to get going with it Um, so yeah there's different purposes as well as to why I might select one over the other so depending on the client's you know presenting problem um, you know and how how I suppose distressed they are in the here and now with with what's going on for them that might change the way that you I suppose, decide to proceed. So I think it really takes that good clinical judgment, clinical reasoning skills to be able to work out where is going to be most appropriate for your client to start. Would it be better to kind of work through those surface level things before you dig down to kind of maybe the root cause so that we can help them function a little bit better before we get to that? Or do we start on the opposite end? And I think that's something that Again, it takes your clinical judgment and reasoning to really work out. It does. And I guess like that's why it's important for me, like, you know, as an early career psychologist finding my feet, I try not to be rigidly adherent to a particular therapy model. So even though I'm getting certified in schema therapy, I don't think I'll be like, look, I only use schema therapy because there are going to be different presentations that come to me where it makes more sense to use different models. And so I'd rather be competent in schema, but be able to draw upon that so I can get the best results for my clients. I like that. And I think like for most therapists, I believe like we tend to kind of broaden our skill set, right? Like as we're, you know, getting further into our career. So we might start with like a basic therapy and really understanding that well. But, you know, as we go along, it's good to add to your toolkit, do some extra training, get some more knowledge and build your skills in other things. So you've got a variety of things to draw from because no modality 
is going to be suitable for every single person. Um, so I think it's up to us to really make sure we've got nice, broad skills. Mm, I completely agree. Let's go on to the case, Amanda, because we've been talking about the case and I wanted to do that little intro, but it turned out longer than I thought it was. So let me read it out. Pamela is the so-called superwoman. She does it all. She is a doctor and is director of the cardiology department at a leading private hospital. She not only excels in the practice of heart surgery, one of the most difficult areas in medicine, but she also heads a large-scale research program. She has won grants from national and private organizations, publishes in top journals, and travels all over the world to present at professional meetings. She earns over $200,000 a year. Nice. At the same time, she is a wife and mother, and she does these things perfectly. Her husband, Craig, is an executive in a large corporation, and practically every week, she either attends or throws some business-related social function. Through it all, she insists on being there for her children and makes sure to schedule time each day to spend with them. She also schedules time each day to exercise and is an excellent tennis player. Her house is immaculate and the grounds around it are gardened perfectly. Pamela says that she regrets that she cannot do all of the gardening herself. She says, I try and do it all. The only problem is that I'm doing so many different things that I'm a mess. It's go, go, go all the time. It's too much and I'm not enjoying life. You would think with all that I have, I would enjoy a little, but I don't. In fact, I've been feeling really anxious, overwhelmed, restless. I can't sleep because I'm planning the next day. I'm not eating. And I'm thinking about how everything could go wrong and how I could avoid that. That's why I've come to therapy. I still get out of bed. Nothing has changed, but maybe it's just that I turned 40. I just want something more out of life. I want some time for myself. So this is Pamela. Initial reactions, Amanda. I feel overwhelmed for her. Yeah. <laughs> there is a lot going on. Um, I think like, you know, we're looking at things obviously like somebody who's quite, you know, perfectionistic, who is quite anxious, perhaps, maybe who's used to having everything um, done really like perfectly, I think I, is what I'm saying. And it kind of might feel like right now that's starting to unravel for her. Um, and all these maybe rigid rules and things that she's put in place to keep it together are no longer sticking. Um, and it sounds like that is causing her some anxiety. Yeah, it does sound like it's causing her some anxiety. My favorite line in this is that she regrets she cannot do all of the gardening herself. It's like, mate, you're doing so much already, but she just seems to beat herself up for not being able to do everything. Exactly. I mean, she is a top-notch heart surgeon. She's <laughs> traveling the world. Yeah. She's got, you know, journal articles published. This lady is a is a kind of high achiever, I think, from what we can see. Yeah. So, I mean, if you talk about counter-transference, it would be, I would be seeing this patient and I'd be like, wow, this is such a successful person. You know, they don't have to be anxious because they just seem to be such a competent human, but maybe they feel like they need to push themselves harder and harder. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting. I think you're right. I think it's that kind of maybe that impression from the outside where it's like, oh, I, I don't understand why maybe this person would be feeling um, anxious or stressed, they look like they've got it all together, but perhaps there's a reason for that um, and a reason maybe there's something driving that. Yeah. Um, and now we're kind of, kind of starting to see the, those bits slip away. Mm. Yeah. No, totally. And so let's have a look at Pamela's presenting problem. She has said, 
this is why I've come to therapy because I'm feeling really anxious, overwhelmed, restless. I can't sleep. I'm not eating. And I'm worrying constantly about how things could go wrong. She wants help with this. She wants to reduce these symptoms, I guess, is essentially what she's telling us. So how might we approach this from a CBT perspective? Okay. So I think if we were taking a CBT perspective, I would probably be guessing that we're looking at like a generalized anxiety. So we're thinking about somebody who's got maybe excessive worry in various domains of her life. It's something that I would be then tackling with, like if we're thinking about the interventions for GAD, and keep in mind that CBT, while it's a broad therapy, it really does change depending on what the presenting problem is, depending on what your diagnostic hypothesis is. So it is important to first like take a step back, think about like what are we working with here? Because a treatment approach for GAD will be so different to a treatment approach for social anxiety, um, et cetera. So I'm thinking GAD. I'm then thinking about like, okay, what is my broad plan for therapy going to look like if this were GAD? And that will be things like, you know, looking at that cognitive perspective of worry, thinking about things like intolerance to uncertainty, um, thinking about things like, you know, the specific exposure type strategies will do with her eventually, um, like worry induction and decatastrophizing and things as such, like those types of interventions that are really, I suppose, specific to treating GAD. Yeah. So there's a whole bunch of things that jumps out if we approach it from a cognitive behavioral perspective. And there's this one model by a researcher whose surname is Dugas. Dugas? It's a 95 model, Intolerance of Uncertainty. And this suggests that intolerance of uncertainty underpins excessive worry. So what happens is a person finds it difficult to tolerate uncertainty and they also have positive beliefs about worry. So they might think, well, a good person worries, or if I'm worrying, that means I really care. So they start worrying and then that leads to further anxiety. They might also have a negative problem orientation. So that means they doubt their ability to actually solve their problems or that the problems are solvable in themselves. They might also have a tendency to avoid their emotions. And so then they cope with their emotions by thinking about them rather than getting in tune with them emotionally. This leads to demoralization. That's the word that Dugas uses and exhaustion. So, (laughs) you know, that actually, when we look at Pamela's symptoms, like that overlaps pretty well, right? I think so. And like when you're thinking of, and like intolerance to uncertainty is so key to generalized anxiety. Like it's what we think kind of underpins it really. It's somebody's inability to tolerate that uncertainty, which is a natural, I suppose it's a natural facet of life. It's something that we can't really avoid, unfortunately, while I would love to. Um, And so (laughs) you (laughs) you have someone that then uses worry as a method of coping with uncertainty. So you're right. There's like this one part where they're looking at it like, you know, this is, um, they're looking at worry as like a healthy, positive coping strategy. Um, But what they're doing is really using worry as a way to deal with uncertainty. So if there is something uncertain, um, which, you know, again, we're faced with every single day of our lives. If I worry about that, that is my way of trying to regain some control over what feels uncertain and to almost try and cope with that uncertainty. So looking at worry as this like almost um, positive way Mm. of dealing 
with something that's uncontrollable. Yeah. And so I guess what we'd be pointing out to Pamela is that, you know, the way that you seem to be using worry as a way of coping with this uncertainty is leading you possibly to being even more overwhelmed and exhausted. So it doesn't seem to be working as you had intended. Yeah, that's right. And I think like it's key to note that worry will reinforce anxiety in a few ways. Um, and we're talking specifically for generalizing anxiety because, again, everyone worries. Worrying is normal, yep. but there's going to become a threshold where that worrying becomes something clinically significant. And this is what we're talking about. So worry reinforces anxiety because it firstly will typically magnify the level of threat of that potential future situation that that person is worried about. Um, it also reinforces it by providing this false sense of control and certainty and makes someone feel that they're going to be able to prevent or foresee challenges before they arise, which we know isn't true. Um, and when that anticipated outcome doesn't happen, if it doesn't happen, they attribute their safety to the worry as opposed to learning that the feared outcome may not have happened regardless. So think of worry now as a safety behavior. We're taking a CBT perspective and why, you know, safety behaviors are obviously going to continue to reinforce anxiety. So even initially, it might be some psychoed on worry, the cognitive perspective of worry, intolerance to uncertainty, but also helping her distinguish between productive versus unproductive worry. Because mm. there is some worrying that is productive. So we're not saying all worry is bad, but we need to help her kind of distinguish between the two. What's productive versus unproductive worry. Yeah, I love distinguishing between productive and unproductive. And I feel like this could be done quite easily for Pamela because she says that she can't sleep because she's planning the next day. And I usually use that as a perfect example of unproductive worry because there ain't much that you can do when you are in bed. Your goal there is to be asleep, not to be thinking about the next day. And you're not likely to remember it even if um, if you're worrying at night. So it really just puts the body in a state of arousal when really we want to be de-arousing. So that's an example of unproductive worry. But an example of productive worry is say like, you've got something coming up. It's a realistic threat, like a public speaking gig, and you want to make sure you do a good job. Um, so it might be that worry motivates you to ensure that you arrive there on time and that you have your notes with you. But that's probably the extent to which worry can be productive in that circumstance in that it leads to problem solving. Yeah, I think like, and there's some of the things that I, I think about, like just as a couple of examples, um, you know, a productive, productive worry is really going to be around problems that are immediate that you can control or influence in some way. And unproductive worry is going to look like you worrying about problems that are future focused, abstract, or that you are unable to influence. Yes. Um, and so it's kind of thinking about those um, even as nice distinguishers. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot that we could do with Pamela in these circumstances if we conceptualize it as generalized anxiety disorder. Like it's a pretty rich treatment plan that we've already just developed. Good job, us. Oh, good job. We did great. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> what do you think you would like? Where would your mind be going with schema therapy just starting? Like, if we're to flip it now and say, okay, we're taking a, a schema approach and we're looking at this case, what are your thoughts and what would your initial treatment plan look like? 
with Pamela, the first thing I'd be doing is I would be administering to her the Young Schema questionnaire. So there's a few different versions of this questionnaire. You can buy it from the Young website, um, which I did. It's a copyrighted questionnaire. And so there's a long version, there's a short version, and then there's a newer version released by a WA researcher, actually, who's also a psychologist. And it's pretty good as well. So you can get that for free and they've released an Excel spreadsheet, which I'll link to in the show notes. But what I do is I get them to do that. I usually also get them to do an attachment questionnaire, to be honest, because I think that's a really important part of schema therapy is having a look at a person's attachment and the way they relate to other people, because it also relates to how they adapted growing up. So what I'll do is I will get that from the person and then I'll present it to them in session two usually. And I phrase it to the person as this will help us understand you just a bit better. What I do then is I have a look at the subsale scores that are quite high. So for the YSQ for the short form, I know that every subscale is out of 30. So scores above 20 are what I look at as clinically significant. But sometimes it's really interesting. Sometimes clients are like, no, the emotional deprivation one is really like where I think this is coming from. And I don't discredit that even if it's below the clinical cutoff. I'm really interested in their perspective of where their difficulties have come from. But usually for a person with Pamela's presenting concerns, she would have a high unrelenting standards schema and she would probably also have a high self-sacrificing schema. She might also have a high emotional deprivation schema. Yeah, I yeah. would agree. I'm, I'm thinking about even maybe like a potentially a failure schema. Yes. Maybe punitiveness oh yes no you're right so punitiveness usually goes along with unrelenting standards as well because what Mm. happens with unrelenting standards is they set themselves really really high usually unachievable unattainable standards and then when they don't meet that standard they punish themselves very um yeah just very harshly very harshly yeah Yeah. harsh kind of internal judgments and criticisms yeah yeah okay so you would do the schema questionnaire, you would be trying to work out or identify those kind of key clinically significant schemas, find a place to start. What would that then look like for like the first few sessions? What would some of those like interventions be like if we're thinking about Pamela and her case? So with Pamela, I think the first things I'd be doing is I usually do a schema audit. So I'd be having a look at unrelenting standards and be asking Pamela, where does this show up in your life? So the purpose of this is to build awareness in Pamela about where this schema is showing up for her. And then I would also introduce to her like, ah, isn't it interesting that in this situation with the gardening, you've feel like you always need to do more. So more and more and more and more. And what happens when you don't do more? And so I really want to introduce Pamela to the idea of having a critic part. And the critic part is what tries to usually protect and motivate people, but it does so in a way that ultimately makes them very anxious or burnt out or both. So the interventions would be one, raising awareness in Pamela of when the schema is showing up in her life. Two, raising awareness of the critic. And I might even give her some strategies to help her to speak back to the critic, but that might actually come up in a bit of chair work early on in schema therapy. So the main uh, sub-therapies, I guess, that schema therapy draws upon is chair work and imagery rescripting. Yes. Um, I was wondering also, you know, in the kind of really early stages where you're unpacking the schemas, um, do you ever kind of look at the, and I came across this term recently, but it could be 
are interchangeably used for other things. I think we were talking about modes, yeah. um, you and I earlier, but you know, the fight, like, oh, yeah, yeah, kind of concept, yeah. and thinking about like what are the ways that person might be like fighting against that schema? What are some ways that they may be avoiding or flight, like kind of a- activating that flight mode for their schema? Or what are some ways that they might be freezing um, and kind of adhering? to that schema yeah Um, and I really like looking at that because I feel like it's so interesting how it'll show up for people in different ways and like they might have this one schema but actually in depending if they're at work they're at home they're with their friends or romantic relationships you might note that the schema will just show up in a completely different way yeah and it's quite amazing so for me when I think of modes I feel like they only make sense in light of the person's history as well. Like, and this is, I think, why schema can be a difficult thing to communicate and psychoeducate clients about, but I hit them hard with the full formulation usually at session two and three, because then I can start building on it. But if you start to pull out these words like mode to a client, they're going to be like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Uh, The way that I get the client on board with it is I usually present them a schema formulation, something like this. And I'll be like, when you were born, there was the story of Pamela. So you were a little child and some things happened when you were growing up. So Pamela might've had parents who insisted that she only get A's in primary school. And if she brought home B's on her report cards, she was sent to her room for dinner for the next month. So from this, Pamela would have had an innate emotional reaction. She might've felt rejected and abandoned. And we would say that the unmet need in this situation was for nurturance, validation and support. So the idea with schema therapy is that children have core emotional needs growing up. We've got, I guess, key uh, survival needs like shelter clothing, but psychologists say that we also have key emotional needs. And what we would say with Pamela is that to survive her needs of validation, acceptance and nurturance going unmet unmet, she adapted by forming certain beliefs. So one of these beliefs might be, I am not good enough. She might've learned that very understandably from her parents saying that her grades are not good enough. She might've learned beliefs about other people, maybe that they're harsh and judgmental. And to protect herself from activation of the intense rejection, abandonment, feelings of unworthiness that she experienced, she might have developed the rule that if I just continue to be perfect, then I can make sure that other people love me and that they don't reject me. I really like that. Do you say that to like, would you use that scenario for all your clients when yeah. you're kind of unpacking and explaining it? Yeah, totally. I go, right. I go through it much slower than that. So I'm usually like checking in and I'm like, does that make sense to you how like we've got these core emotional needs? And I might just say, I usually pull out a picture of the core emotional needs um, and I'll be like, look, here's just some ones that we've agreed on, which all children need. They're non-negotiable. Um, they just mm. make us like happy, stable humans. Yeah. And then, so I try and explain it this way in a very narrative form where I'm just like, essentially I'm saying to them, this makes perfect sense. Of course, a child would conclude that if their parents like are saying this to them, they would feel rejected. If I introduce this, I really liked your example because I hadn't even thought of providing like a case scenario like that, I think it's so helpful for people to be able to put it into context and also to like just validate and empathize that of course you're feeling this way, of course you've developed these schemas given your experiences. Um, so 
for me, what I really like doing is when I'm kind of unpacking the schemas and maybe providing some like light psychoeducation about it, I really like to explore with them like how maybe even get them to reflect on like where do they think it first started. Yes. Yeah, like I would say to them, like, where did you, where do you think you learned that you need to keep on going and going and going and not stop? Exactly. I love that. And I think for me, it's like, it's helping them see it and helping them reflect on it. Like, where do you think that began? What's the earliest time you can remember having this like deep sense of feeling like I failed or that, you know, I'm only worthy if I achieve to, you know, this standard and helping them kind of really connect the dots. Yes. Um, I think is so valuable. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. And yeah, in the in the formulation that I present, then I I do try and do that. It's it's really hard. I feel like schema therapy is quite a hard therapy to master. So I'm still getting better at it. Um, but it is really getting the client on board and asking them to connect the dots where it's most meaningful and helpful to them, I've found. Yeah. I, I like the way that you framed it and you've kind of approached those initial parts. I think then like bringing it back into like present day like so like if we're kind of unpacking where it began and where did it start and I think it's then kind of bringing it back to like okay like how does it show up now and that's where I would be bringing in that kind of you know fight flight freeze type model of like okay like what are the ways that you surrender to it what are the ways that you avoid it what are the ways you overcompensate for it and I think like I always just find it so interesting unpacking this with clients because, again, it's like it can just show up in the most, I suppose, such like diverse ways depending on what setting of their lives like we're looking at. Yeah, and so the way that I do that with clients sometimes is, for example, if Pamela has a core belief of I'm not good enough, we'll talk about just a generic situation like organising a party and I'll be like, how do you think a person who believes deep down that they are not good enough, how do you believe that they would show up at this party? Okay, what's another way that they would show up? And what's another way? And then how did, would you, you show up at this party? Isn't that interesting? And then we can categorize that as like fight, flight, freeze. Mm, yeah. I um, If this is helpful for anyone, I have like, and I love giving these examples to people because I'm like, for some, when I'm asking them about like that surrender, avoidance, overcompensation, they're like, I really have no idea. Like it's so hard to kind of maybe even just, connect those dots to what they're doing in their lives right and so I provide usually a few examples and I'll give you one for emotional deprivation so that you can kind of see like what's an example of surrendering avoiding and overcompensating so for example let's say it's an emotional deprivation schema an example of someone who's surrendering to it would look like, say, they are selecting emotionally depriving partners and they don't ask them to meet their their needs. So this is a way that we would typically think of someone with an emotional deprivation schema, a way that they're kind of reinforcing it really. Um, An example of avoidance would be that maybe somebody avoids intimate relationships altogether because they're avoiding that schema being activated. So if I don't go into intimate relationships, then I avoid having to have that sense of having that emotional deprivation. Then you've got examples of overcompensation, which might look like for emotional deprivation, where someone acts emotionally demanding with their partner, 
uh, and close friends. So like you're almost then acting in the way that is opposite to what you'd expect of someone maybe who's got that emotional deprivation schema. Yeah, we often see that for people who have an entitlement schema, they might also have emotional deprivation after that. So they build up this exterior shell of like bravado and I guess uh, accomplishments that they can share with other people to hide that very fragile interior. Yeah, uh, it's it's interesting also when, of course, you look at all the schemas together for somebody, like what are the ones that are significant? How do they overlap? How do they show up? So, yeah. No, I really love those examples. And one of the things that I also say to clients is I really highlight the survival advantage of each of the fight, flight and freeze. So it's not that they're stupid having selected emotionally deprived partners. It's that it makes sense that if you believe that you are not good enough or that you don't deserve love, it feels threatening to you to actually have partners who would be there for you. You'd be like, this is unusual. This is scary. So it makes more sense to just give into the schema and be like, it's true. I'm not good enough. I don't deserve love and then choose partners that respond and fit in with that belief yes and it's like it's so fascinating to me but I think like from what we understand and if you're going to take this perspective too like even when something is unhealthy is maladaptive is not good for you we tend to seek out what is familiar and we seek out what we know so you know if we've come from perhaps um, early childhood experiences which were um, you know, maybe cold or rejecting, or we didn't get that kind of our emotional needs met, even though like logically we we might form into an adult who understands that that isn't ideal and that you obviously would seek for something different. It's, it's almost like we seek how what is familiar, even when it's not good for us. And in that way, we go on to just continue to reinforce these schemas and core beliefs, right? Yes. Because if I'm seeking out that environment because it feels familiar and I'm not doing it on purpose, it's subconsciously, that's just going to continue to reinforce this vicious cycle of like, yeah, um, I'm not getting my needs met. But it's usually because of like the choices sometimes that we're making that almost kind of serve that schema. Yeah, and this is one of the key goals of schema therapy, which is to care for the vulnerable child. So the vulnerable child in schema therapy is the one who had these experiences growing up and had innate emotional reactions to them. So it might have been a lonely child, an abandoned child, a rejected child, an anxious child. And what we're saying is that with these coping modes that the person is going into, sometimes if they're not quite working out for the person, it's because they're not actually considering the needs of the vulnerable child. So if you are, for example, doing an overcompensation mode and you have emotional deprivation, you might never have authentic emotional connections with other people because you're connecting with people only based on, say, your achievements and this very external kind of false exterior you're presenting. So you might still be a very lonely child underneath that. And we would say, you're not actually meeting the needs of this vulnerable you, this little you. I love that. Mm. Yeah. So I guess with Pamela, if we come back to her overcompensation, there might be a child growing up for Pamela that never felt like she got the approval and validation that she really needed from other people. So she feels like she has to overcompensate and work and work and work and go and go and go and criticize herself harshly if she doesn't meet these standards. But what she's actually doing is criticizing that little girl inside of her who really just wanted to be told that you are good enough and I love you no matter what you do. 
Mm. Is this where you think like taking a schema angle, you'd bring in some of that kind of chair work or imagery rescripting? Yeah. So I'd probably get, I'd probably do some chair work with Pamela to really separate out this over controller mode is what we call it. So the the unrelenting standard schema is frequently associated with a perfectionistic over-controller mode, and this is the overcompensatory mode. And I would get that in a chair, and then I would get Pamela's vulnerable side in a chair. And depending on how strong Pamela's healthy adult part is, I might get that in a chair, or I would help initially. So it depends on how much Pamela's healthy adult side can be like, hey, to the over-controller side, like that's too much for little Pamela. Like, do you see how much you are making her feel bad? Like, she's just a little girl. I can see how scared she is and you're just making her feel like crap. So we'd really need the, the key goal of schema therapy. Well, one of the key goals is to really be able to make the healthy adult side bigger so that it can reduce the maladaptive coping modes influence on the person in their day-to-day life and help them to meet their needs in a kind way. Mm. From your perspective, do you feel like these schemas ever like fully go away with enough work? Oh, that's a good question. I'll be interested to hear your perspective after I share mine. Um, So this is how I explain it to my clients. I say that it is definitely possible for the influence of schemas that are creating difficult patterns in your life to reduce 100%. Like I have no doubt about that, but I don't think that they will ever go away completely because a schema is a particular way of just viewing yourself, other people in the world around you. And we all have schemas, but the difference between, I guess, schemas in people who come to therapy and people who don't is that the schemas are interfering and causing difficulty in the person's life. And that's when they usually seek out therapy. So for me, for example, I do have an unrelenting standard schema, but I don't need therapy for it. It's still there. Um, and I have in the past, but I don't now because it's not actually interfering and I can have that flexibility and have that healthy adult part be like, Brandon, if this isn't perfect, that's all good, mate. Like I know you try your best and I know you do good enough and you deserve rest. So I can have this nice part, like talk to the unrelenting standards part and keep it all in check yeah mm. do you feel like maybe then it's kind of like your attachment style like how maybe at times of like stress or when we're not kind of psychologically at our best the way we revert back maybe to those kind of baseline maybe you know attachment needs but in a schema therapy context it'd be reverting back to those schemas they get activated yeah totally and I think and I explain that to clients as well I'm like you'll get better at picking up when you get into the over-controlling mode and being like, hey, I've been sucked into that over-controlling mode right now. This is what's happening. And then I bring in the DBT stop skill and I'm like, stop, take a step back, observe what's happening and proceed with your values. And in the schema therapy instance, it's what do I need here? So it's checking in with little Pamela and being like, what does little Pamela need here? Does she need to organize this party or does she actually just need a rest on the couch right now? And we get good at attuning to those needs and meeting those needs and then not feeling guilty. So guilt is a key barrier to meeting our needs sometimes. And I'll say to clients, look, you haven't done anything wrong. Everyone deserves to rest. You are not a robot. Mm. Mm. What do you think? Yeah, I I think from my perspective, I suppose a part of me, like, I mean, I know, like, I mean, this is a different topic, but like, I know from like attachment-based kind of research, we we definitely do think that 
it's there, it's ingrained, like we can definitely improve and we have healthy relationships, but at times of psychological distress, we tend to revert back to those baseline um, attachment styles we have. And so I kind of feel like, like I'm thinking about that and thinking about schemas and these things that kind of sit under the surface and dictate what we do. I think I always had this idea that we had a little bit more hope with schema type work, maybe because if we're thinking of it like a belief and one that, you know, like I think the difference with that and say like an attachment style is an attachment style is developed in that really critical period, the first two years of life, right? Yeah. And that's when it really shifts and um, it's it's almost kind of cements itself there. Um, whereas a schema, I think, like could come about through childhood, could come about maybe at any point yeah, almost depending on your circumstances. Yeah. And so when I think of it like that and I think of like, just even like neuroplasticity, like is this relevant here? I'm kind of thinking yeah. about our ability to maybe change and shift. And like if we brought enough awareness to it and enough attention to those schemas and how they're operating, could we completely remove them? Could we shift them just by thinking, behaving, interacting differently, which would then hopefully make room for new schemas to emerge like if I'm no longer operating in a way that is gonna feed that and feed that schema of like I need to be at my best all the time to be worthwhile as a person if that changes shouldn't the rest change too I think it's a really interesting question and I think yeah it's possible but so have you heard of this idea Amanda of positive schemas no. Yeah. So there was this paper, I think it was reduced like two years ago, maybe I'll chuck it in the show notes, but there's this person trying to come up with positive schemas and these are mapped onto the maladaptive schemas. So I think like theoretically, I reckon there's space to, to your idea that if you reduce the unrelenting standard schema, say, then you can bring rise to the positive counterpart of that schema. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'd say overall, though, is that the key aim of schema therapy is to strengthen the healthy adult. So I'd say it's reducing the disproportionate influence of the unrelenting standards schema on your behavior in your day-to-day life. And that's through increasing the healthy adult and the influence of that. Yeah, I I, I get that. I think like, and I, I'd love to maybe delve into a bit more research on it. I wonder if there is anything conclusive. Like I could totally see your perspective and why that makes complete sense. And I'm like, oh, I wonder if anyone's done any. And I mean, how would you even study something like this, right? (laughs) Would you study this? Like, is it really quantifiable to be like, yep, scheme is gone. How would we ever really research that? Because there is is the positive schema inventory. So the person who... Yeah, so I reckon you could by giving them the YSQ periodically and then giving them mm. the positive schema inventory periodically. And then I guess if your hypothesis is supported, you'd see a reduction in the maladaptive schemas yeah. and then an increase in the positive schemas. Yeah. I don't think you know that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, probably not. I'm thinking of like, I just I just realized like light bulb moment for myself because yeah. I've done the schema inventory on myself, yeah. like multiple times throughout my life should. now. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And so I've done it on myself. Um, I've had it done 
several times. I'm just thinking over the past, like, say, I don't know, 15, 20 years. And so actually, the more I think about it, mine have changed. Oh, interesting. Mine have changed. Like I haven't done, I haven't done one now in a couple of years, but the last time I did it, I was like, oh, those ones weren't showing up. Yeah. And I was like, okay. So maybe like my one person, this is (laughs) is not science people, but like going off my own experience, I'm like, okay, like maybe it is possible. Maybe it is possible for them to shift, to change or to not be as relevant. But then again, we know like, right, with the wise cube, I'm thinking about it. Like we know it's so like, it's so subject to even maybe how you're feeling on that day. Like maybe if I you know, completed it today versus maybe three weeks ago when I might not have been feeling great, maybe my responses would be different too. Yeah, true. Um, But I think that's amazing. And I think, you know, if I bring it to EMDR even, so one of the goals in EMDR is to reduce the belief in the negative belief that was generated by the trauma and increase the belief in the Mm. positive belief um, that we would hope to live by in our day-to-day lives. And yeah, there's lots of successful EMDR treatment where people believed at one point I was unsafe and then they believe I'm Mm. safe now. And like, that's amazing. So yeah, Mm. I absolutely think that people can really dramatically change how they view themselves and the world around them. Yeah. I think if we're taking it as like a belief, maybe, yeah, maybe we can. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Great unpacking that. Mm. Yeah. That was really interesting. Thanks for that deep dive, Amanda. Was there anything else that was um, from a CBT perspective that we'd want to consider with Pamela's case? Look, I think you know, the basics around just getting your diagnoses right or your your hypothesis, like your diagnostic hypothesis, get that right because that would change how you do CBT, whereas it may not for schema, right? Like for schema, it may not matter as much if it's GAD versus social anxiety because the in, like the types of interventions and assessments you're using are probably going to look fairly similar, whereas with CBT, it actually does change. Like it changes, you know, quite dramatically, like how I'm going to approach GAD versus social anxiety. So I would say first and foremost, diagnostic hypothesis, get that right. If we're thinking GAD, yes, I would be coming back to some of those key interventions I was talking about, like, you know, providing the psychoed on the perspective of worry, helping that person really, um, understand you know intolerance to uncertainty and how worry is a coping mechanism for that you know helping them distinguish between productive versus unproductive worry um you know and we might follow that with um some kind of you know basic cognitive interventions behavioral experiments and then when we get to the exposure type work for GAD we're looking at interventions like worry induction and decatastrophizing we're looking at risk and uncertainty inoculation um, and we're really looking at kind of delving into those like metacognitive beliefs about worry before we get to the core beliefs and schemas. Mm. No, and we could use that in schema therapy as well. So those sorts of cognitive interventions and those behavioral interventions are very relevant for schema therapy as well. It's an integrative model. Um, And that's just simply to help reduce that symptom, the presence of the symptoms. We might frame it differently in schema therapy, but it's essentially the same Mm. technique. Yeah. And I think like we were kind of talking earlier, it's like you're just starting maybe from the the other end, like I'm starting at the surface and you're starting like where the kind of meat is and working your way back up. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, exactly. Um, The only other thing I'd add from a schema perspective is one of the other adaptive modes, there's the healthy adult mode, which is one of our adaptive modes, and then there's the happy child mode. So the happy child mode loves play and loves spontaneity. It's imagine a happy child and you have the happy child mode. At least that's pretty self-explanatory for schema therapy. (laughs) Um, And so usually for folks who have unrelenting standards, the happy child is very constrained. It's like, nope, no fun, no fun allowed. If I'm having fun, then I'm lazy and selfish, um, that kind of thing. Um, so we work on probably through chair work, but we can also do imagery scripting. We can also do cognitive interventions. We're working on freeing that happy child and even scheduling in sometimes to do something pleasurable. And the function of scheduling in that pleasurable activity is that it works to reduce anxiety as well. Like if you're having fun, that's a great antidote to anxiety. Mm, yeah. Um, I like that. And I think, again, like you can really integrate these therapies quite nicely. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything you want listeners to take away from this episode? I feel like we've kind of dabbled between the two of them. We really just wanted to show what it was like formulating from two different perspectives. Hey. Yeah, I think so. I think it's like it's always interesting to unpack that, like, depending on the theoretical model you're using, like, you know, the way that we conceptualize a case and the way that we plan for treatment is definitely going to change. So um, I always love that case conceptualization type chat. I think it's interesting thinking about it from like two different perspectives, how we tackle this kind of one problem. Mm, Yeah, I think it's interesting too. And maybe I'll say for early career listeners, like, I know there was a pressure that I felt maybe my first year of practice to learn schema therapy immediately or learn five other therapies immediately, but I was getting good results just knowing CBT and a bit of ACT as well. So that used to be my jam when I was in my first year. I'd be like, okay, CBT doesn't really fit for this person, so I'll go to ACT. And yeah, I was getting good results with just those two therapies. And you can see from Amanda and I's discussion that Clients respond to different things as well, but we can get very good results and outcomes with both. I agree. And I think like you need to take the pressure off yourself if you're really early in your career that you need to be good at everything right now because you just can't. Exactly. And I think like (laughs) you're way better just building your foundational therapy skills I feel like CBT is best served as an early career psychologist because it's first-line treatment for most things. It will help you with most things. It's the one that I think everyone should get good at first. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree 100% because for things you're unfamiliar with, it's so good to be able to fall back on a CBT formulation as well and then explain that to the client. Um, Yeah, it's it's just really good. Okay. Anything else you want to say to listeners? You want to tell them about your anxiety manual? Oh, yeah. So I have got a really nice comprehensive therapy manual um, for generalized anxiety. I've got other ones for kind of depression and social anxiety too. But given we're on topic of anxiety today, I have a therapy manual that's uh, published on my website. It has session plans, it has therapy worksheets, and it has a lot of discussion about, you know, the evidence-based intervention and how to actually apply it in a clinical setting. So if you are interested in that, and if you kind of want a nice step-by-step approach to treatment, do check that out. Great. Thank you so much, Amanda. Listeners, I will link to that in the show notes. And thank you so much, Amanda, for coming on. I feel like you've kept me on track. You've really helped unpack this really complex topic, which I would have made 10 times more complex were you not here helping to actually bring it down to us. So thank you. 
Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Okay, listeners, thank you for listening. Take care and catch you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career psychologists. My mission is to unpack the challenges faced by early career psychologists so they don't have to go through them alone. I need your help to get these episodes out there and there's a bunch of really cool free things you can do to help me. Most importantly, subscribe to the podcast. That way you get the show as soon as I put it out. Also, consider telling a friend and I would be so honoured if you'd share some of our episodes on social media. Thanks for listening. Have a good one and see you next time.